in a couple of weeks, we're going to have with us here on, actually on September 11th, um, good friends of ours, James and Beverly Rackley. They're missionaries in southern Mexico. We've been down there um, three times at least and um, to do conferences with them. They're good friends of ours. They're wonderful people, close friends of Pastor Sam and Donna and kind of build out of the same mold. And um, when you're living the mission field, you know, you, have to, you really have to take God at his word. I mean, we're supposed to all do that, but they don't have any backups. And he had sent me a funny email, and he's always doing that, about the recession, if there is anything funny about it. But sometimes it's good to laugh. And I was planning on reading that, so I just fired something quick back to him and kind of jokingly said to him, you know, well, we're always praying for you for hurricanes. Now it's your turn to pray for us. By the way, we had an earthquake yesterday. And normally he gives you a funny, quick, quick answer. I want to read the parts of this answer to you because it really it, it challenges us. He said, A storm was headed for us last week. It was going to hit land just a few miles south of Bacalar, which is where the oasis is and where they live. We had meetings scheduled in the town of Ingenio, because uh, I had talked to him last Friday about these, in Saturday and Sunday. It's right in the middle of the storm path, and we're supposed to hit at 2 p.m., I stood my ground as I had been doing, and I cursed the storm and instructed that its path, that its path was in, no, in, in the no-storm area, and that storms were not allowed because to get where it was allowed, where it was headed, it would have to go through the line that I had put up with the blood of Jesus. He, he's been doing that. He's been just establishing a line with the blood of Jesus. I'll tell you a little more about that. We had an extremely successful meeting. The storm turned, and it did not even get near us. It headed... We had about 400 people. The altars were filled. Many got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and were, and were healed. He goes on to the key to moving a storm is not to just say the words rebuking it, but one has to truly believe that everything within them, that they have the power and authority and to expect that what they say is going to take place. She said, his wife Beverly preached twice and I preached this week. We preached on the authority of the believer. And um, he said, when she tells me dinner's ready, I get ready to eat. So... <laughs> He said, so I say when the storm you must obey me, it has no choice. Last year, I stood in the oasis yard. That's their compound down there. And I remember this. I saw seven storms turned that were supposed to hit us. Now, there's an eighth one because when we were down there last year, at the end of the conference, we went up and spent a few days with them in Cancun, right on the water. And we woke up. We're out there one morning. Uh, Beverly and Anita were doing something together. And James and I are just sitting out on this little deck, and I noticed about one in the afternoon that they're rolling up all the tarps, they're putting all the chairs away, and I think, that's kind of an unusual thing to be doing on a resort in the middle of a day. So we didn't enter the internet or any tele- television, so he called back home, and they said, oh yeah, there's a hurricane bearing down on you, it's supposed to hit there about 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, midnight tonight. And we didn't see any of the hotel, so we went down and asked the hotel people. They said, yeah, it's supposed to hit us. And so we're going to bat- that's why we're battening things down. Now, James has more experience than I do. So he went up and stood on the balcony and did exactly what he just told you he did. And I kid you not, that storm which had us headed was about, I don't know, 100 miles from us, literally went south and went around us. He tracked a storm. I watched it with him. It literally was headed towards them. He stood, you're going to hear this, he stood and he draws a line in the blood of Jesus that that storm can't cross. And then what happens is the storm literally, they had a track, I saw it. It went 90 degrees south, about 100 miles south of them. It went west of them and then went 90 degrees north and continued on its original path. Seven times last year. But when you're down there with grass roofs, 
and nothing else to protect you, you've got to have the Word of God. I've listened to testimonies of people that live in stick houses, literally stick houses, that have gone through Category 4 and 5 hurricanes and survived because they stood on the Word. God's Word works. God's Word works. But our problem is we have too many other alternatives. And so we kind of turn to God and His Word as a last resort. And by that time, our confidence that God, the Word of God is going to work on our lives. So you got to, it's as He said, you've got to know it's going to happen. You can't try that. You've got to know it's going to happen. Praise the Lord. Well, I just wanted to share that with you instead of the, the joke that he sent. We'll do that some other time because I really felt that that was really where it would be more helpful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is the truth. We thank you that we can stand on your word and your word is faithful. You're not a man that you should lie, nor are you the son of man that you should repent. Have you not said it and shall you not cause it to come to pass? We thank you that your word is, says that we've been given authority over Satan and over all the power of the enemy so that nothing shall in any way harm us. We thank you that you've given to us the name of Jesus and all of heaven moves at the mention of that name in faith. We thank you that you've given us the blood of Jesus to cover us and to protect us because it is the very life of Jesus spilled for us and poured out on your throne room. We thank you for, all the, for the word of God and all that you've given to us. And Father, we ask you to forgive us for so seldom do we really take you at your word and stand upon your word and exercise your word. So, Father, we just ask you to continue to teach us and to challenge us to grow in our faith in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I didn't read the rest of it. See, he called back home and found out they live in Texas, that it had been over 100 degrees for 60 straight days and there had been no rain. So he said they got together and they prayed, and that day it rained. The word of God works. Open your Bible with me, if you would, Brendan. Just don't take it. Just put it over there. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Did we pray? Okay, thank you. <laughs> going to be one of those nights. <clears throat> I have a sound mind. Hopefully you can hear the sound of it tonight. <laughs> Verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, that's because we wrestle against them. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and having above all taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." 
This is talking about spiritual warfare, and there are other things we can talk about spiritual warfare, but I really felt impressed to do that, and we've, we've, it's been a, a number of weeks since I've had a chance to, to minister on, on Wednesday night we've had, for a number of reasons, but, so I was looking forward to this. I want to get back into this. We talked at the beginning because this comes at the end of a very, one of the most important books in the Bible because Ephesians really outlines and summarizes the gospel. And then it also, beginning in about chapter 4, begins to talk about how we are to implicate this in our lives. And then it talks about including relationships of husband and wife, relationships of children to parents, and relationship of, of, of employer to employer, and all of those relationships. And having done all that, now it almost as if it tags this discussion on at the end, starting in chapter 6, verse 10, saying, finally... And he's talking about, obviously, some kind of warfare or wrestling here. And, and uh, we went back and looked in, in a number of weeks ago in Acts chapter 20 where Paul addresses the elders of this church and prepares them because he's leaving them and they're not going to see him this side of heaven again. And, and he's telling them that the Spirit has shown him that when he leaves, two things are going to happen. Ravenous wolves, not four-legged but two-legged, are going to come in from the outside and try to devour the church. And not only that, but there are going to some that rise up from within to try to lead you astray and off target. And he's therefore, there's going to be a battle for this church that's going to go on. So that's in many ways the struggle that he's talking about. And those wolves haven't gone away. They're just dressed a little differently. And the weapons that the enemy has have not gone away, which is why it's important to see that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities. And we don't have the time, nor is that our purpose to go through. Notice he lists a number of different kinds of enemies here. They're all part of Satan's Satan's hordes of his army, but there are different levels of authority within the kingdom of Satan. Just as there's different levels of authority within the kingdom of God, there's different levels of authority within Satan's kingdom. And so he's warning us that we don't wrestle against them. I was in here for a while praying this morning about this, and, and God has a wonderful sense of humor. I mean, the devil doesn't come up with it, and we didn't create it, so it has to come from God. He has to have a sense of humor. He puts up with us. He made us. He's got to have a sense of humor. So we need to have a sense of humor about, you know, you need to laugh at yourself every once in a while. Just look in the mirror and laugh at yourself sometime. Just loosen up a little bit. Sometimes we just really need to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves quite so seriously. And, uh, and it, it will add years to your health. <laughs> and I was praying, coming right about down this aisleway over here. And the, I just heard this inside of me. He says, isn't it inter- interesting? On Halloween... People dress up like the devil. But in spiritual warfare, the devil dresses up like people. <laughs> I didn't think of it. <laughs> so that boss that you have, especially if you work here, <laughs> that spouse sitting next to you, <laughs> Whatever that person that you might think has just really got it out for you, they're not your enemy. That's why the Bible tells us to pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Why? Because someone's using them to get at you. See, the enemy's a deceiver. If he can get you to fight the wrong enemy, then, then he's, you're not going to stop him. And in fact, you will end up 
stepping out of love and into his territory. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But I want to begin to get into this armor. We've talked a lot, a, a, a number of times about the battle that it's, we're fighting his wiles with the power of God. But the key thing I want to, before we get into it, is recognize this is God's armor. It's the armor of God. And literally in the Greek it says the armor that comes from God. Now I don't want to embarrass you, but how many of you believe God knows what he's doing? <laughs> he's watching, you know. <laughs> Um, God knows what he's doing. And, and, and he has prepared an armor for you that works. And the reason many people are getting beaten up is first of all, they don't realize they're fighting a spiritual war. They're not fighting people. But once you recognize it as a spiritual battle, the key thing is to make sure you're not fighting in your own strength and with your own weapons. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, The weapons of our warfare, see there it is, a fight, are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They're not of our own effort. But they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. In the same way, God has given us His own armor to fight against the enemy's wiles. Remember what we're fighting against. Not His power, not His strength, but His deceits and His tricks. That's what the word wiles mean. So we don't need to be inside a, a, a steel-plated tank with a, you know, a, a six inches of steel armor on it in order to withstand some kind of missile because the devil doesn't have power against you because you're not in his kingdom. Right? At least three of you aren't. Okay. <laughs> Because Colossians 1.13 says when you came to Christ, He delivered you out of the domain, the dominion, the authority, the rule of darkness, that's Satan's, and transferred you over into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In God's kingdom, Satan has no power. That's why the only thing he's got are wiles or tricks. Remember Wiley Coyote? He had tried to use his wiles against the roadrunner. Roadrunner was it was? Didn't work out too well, did it? All right. So it's God's armor is especially fitted for the kind of battle that we're in. I don't know what they do now in modern days because we don't wear this kind of armor, although I guess, you know, they still wear, you know, flak vests and things like that. I was watching some reporter the other day, actually yesterday, over in Libya, out in the middle of all this shooting, and she had this huge vest on, and that was a flak vest, so that if, somebody got, if she, a stray shot tried to hit her, it wouldn't hit her in some fatal place. So there's armor, but in the old days, the armor that you wore was suited, no pun intended, was suited so, for the kind of battle that you were in and the weapons you were going to face. And so God has designed His own armor that's especially designed for the battle that you're in. And so it's important that we put His armor on because it's tested and designed by Him so that you won't be taken out. So that's what we're going to begin to look at tonight. And the, and the first one is in many ways the most vital one. It's in verse 13. There, excuse me, verse 7, 14. 
Stand therefore. Notice, by the way, it says stand three times. Stand therefore, not run. (laughs) Stand therefore, having girded or wrapped around your waist, girded your waist with truth. So the first part of this armor is a belt that goes around your waist, and it is the belt of truth. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The belt of truth. The belt signified in Bible times that from which all the rest of the armor was somehow attached. The sword was hung from that. It's the most crucial part of the armor, at least the foundation of the armor. There's shields and there's helmets and there's breastplates, but the crucial part, the under part that was crucial to everything else was the belt because the sword was hung from the belt and other things were hung from the belt. And so this first part is in many ways the most important part and that belt is the belt of truth. So the first thing in order to make sure we're wearing the armor of God is to make sure we're walking in and operating in truth. So we're going to talk tonight a little bit about truth and why it is so critical. The word truth, there are several words for truth, but the primarily word for truth in the New Testament is aletheia. And it it, it means literally nothing hidden. Nothing covered over, totally exposed, nothing hidden. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and we get a great picture of it here. Remember, this is spiritual warfare. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, of course, is the story of God's creation. God's done what He wants to do. Created the earth or recreated the earth, depending on which theory you want to go on. And then placed a garden, created His man. Created all the animals, all the plant life, hung the stars and the moon and did all the rest of that. Creates man and then creates this special place for him, this garden of Eden, or the place of delight literally is what it means. Placed him in there and says, have at it. Enjoy it. In fact, some translations said he commanded him to enjoy it. The only thing is there was one tree they couldn't eat of. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's because God did not design man to handle the knowledge of good and evil on his own. That's all God expected us to do was to obey him. If we obey him, you don't need to know good from evil. You just do what he says to do. He knows good from evil. Because God didn't want us to have to deal with evil. He doesn't want us to be distracted by it. He didn't want us to have to be tainted by it. He does. You know, have you ever noticed when you watch evil long enough, you feel dirty? That's a good sign you shouldn't be watching what you're watching. But even sometimes it's just the news. Sometimes if I watch the news too long, I feel like I ought to go take a shower. It's just, it's just so, my goodness, it's just, you know. God didn't want us to have to deal with evil. So he told us not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of it. But of course, when Satan comes, that's exactly what he comes after. Before chapter 3, when Satan comes to destroy this creation, it ends with this verse at the end of chapter 2. And they, that's the man and the woman, were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Naked there does not simply refer to the fact that they had no physical clothes on. 
it meant that there was nothing hidden from each other or from God. And they were not, because there was nothing to be ashamed of. The reason we hide is because we're ashamed and we're afraid. You see that when you get over into chapter 3, because they violated God's commandment, and the very first thing they do is what? They go and hide, and then they make, take fig leaves and try to cover themselves up. We've studied this before on Sunday morning last year. We've talked about the fact that they weren't even conscious of themselves. They were conscious of each other and of God. They were not aware of themselves. The biggest battle you have is self-awareness. It's what keeps you from being close to God. The more you're aware of yourself, the less you're aware of Him. The more you're aware of Him, the less you're aware of himself, yourself. Notice Jesus didn't talk about Himself very much. He talked about His Father a whole lot. So when you're worried about yourself, planning about yourself, thinking about yourself, trying to change yourself, trying to fix yourself up, that's just what the devil wants you to do because you're not looking at him, at, the, at God. You're not looking at the Lord and drawing close to him. You're drawing closer to yourself and further away from him even though you think you're doing good things. Remember, it's the wiles of the devil that we fight against. So here they're both naked. They're not ashamed. They're not hiding anything. Everything's totally open, totally exposed. There's no reason to hide anything because everything's exposed before God and before each other and everything is open. Their relationship's open with each other and open with God. There is nothing, nothing to hinder it. Charles Elliott, when he was here last week, quoted um, uh, John, and Char- John and Charles Wesley's mother, because I, I had mentioned it to him in the course of our conversation of the day. I was studying last year definitions for sin and she gave a definition for sin that they then adopted which really is a powerful definition sin is anything that draws you away from the Lord to whatever degree and so so here there was nothing drawing them away now let's talk about why this is a weapon why is truth a weapon the answer to this is understanding who God is and what God is. God is truth. Therefore, His armor must begin with truth. Because if we're not walking in truth, then we can't be wearing God's armor, because God's armor has to be based on truth, because God is truth. This is going to sound theological now, but it's going to get right down to where we live in a few minutes. In John chapter 4, In verses 23 and 24, Jesus is talking with the woman uh, at the well. And he he talks to her about, about, you know, if you you asked of me, I would give you water. If you drank of this water, you'd never thirst again. And she said, well, how are you going to get water that does that? And she said, well, you know, we drink at this well. You know, where are you going to get this? He said, if you knew who I am, you would ask of me, and I would give to you a well of water that springing up would never end. Talking about eternal life. And she says, I perceive, you know, she said, I want this water. And he said, bring your husband. See, now he's getting personal. He's getting down to the issues of her life. It was a nice discussion at this point. Now it gets down to the issues of her life. He says, why don't you bring your husband to me? She says, well, um, 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 I, really, I really don't have a husband right now. He says, that's right. 
You've had five, and the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband. Now she's getting uncomfortable, so she wants to tension the attention back on him. She says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> and now she changes the subject to worship. See, when, when, when the Holy Spirit begins to get close to people, they want to change the subject. So you start talking about Jesus, they'll ask you this question. Well, what about people that haven't heard? Has anybody ever asked you that question? What about the people in China or somewhere that have never heard the gospel? And I let them ask the question. And then I answer them with a question. What's that got to do with you? You've heard. I don't know what God's going to do with them, but you've heard. What are you going to do? Now you do that lovingly, but my point is people, when they get uncomfortable, want to divert the attention from them, and that's what this woman's doing. So she starts talking about worship, a nice theological concept. And she says, she said, well, you know, uh, your people worship in Jerusalem, which is the Jews. We, that's the Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, there's coming a time and place. He says, my father's longing for true worshipers. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. In order to worship him, you have to be in spirit because God is spirit. And you have to be in truth, because God is truth. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word, that's the full expression of God, we've talked about this before, became flesh and dwelt among us. So God took on flesh in Jesus and dwelt among us. The rest of that verse says, and we beheld Him. We could now see God, what He was like, because we could see Him in the flesh. And what did we see about Him? He was full of grace and truth. So what were the things we saw about God when He was manifest in the flesh? We saw that He was full of grace and truth. Because God is truth. Therefore, in order to wear his armor, we have to be operating in truth. So the beginning of putting on the armor of God and standing in spiritual warfare is to make sure that we're walking in truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. The Bible says God and His Word are one. So therefore God is truth. He has to be truth because there can't be something that exists outside of God. So for there to be some independent truth outside of God means there had to be some other creator before God. And since there wasn't and there can't be, truth has to have come out of God and actually it's what He is. John 14, verse 6, in Jesus' discussion with Philip when he says, you know, show us the Father. We don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So God is truth. And in order, therefore, the beginning of the armor is that we must be operating in truth. Just to reinforce why this is so 
important and vital. Remember, we're in a spiritual warfare. And, and in Ephesians, he tells us who our enemy is. Not your spouse, not your boss, but it's spiritual forces. Basically, it's Satan and his legions of demonic forces. If that's our adversary, we need to know how the adversary operates. And Jesus made that very clear in John chapter 8, verse 44. He said, He is a liar and the father of lies, and there is no truth in him. So just as God is truth, Satan is a lie. It doesn't mean he doesn't exist, but he only operates in lies. Now, be very careful, because although he's a liar, he will use the truth. But he uses the truth as a bait. No one's ever been fooled by a counterfeit $3 bill. Because there's no real $3 bills. No animal's ever been poisoned with plastic meat. Because a dog or cat or dog smart enough to know, that's not real, I'm not biting it. Satan's a deceiver. That's his weapon. And he uses lies. He operates in lies. In fact, he's not capable of telling the truth because there's no truth in him. But he'll use the truth. So he may take something that you've done or not done and then talk to you about it but he's going to lie to you about what you did. Give you an example. Suppose you made a mistake today. You said something you know you shouldn't have said, and you repented of it. Well, before you repented of it, you know, you just, you're, you're, this thought keeps pinding your mind. Oh, did I blow it? Oh, God's mad at me. I'm done. I'm cooked. I'm finished as a Christian. What kind of Christian am I that I would say something like that? And the feel, you know, slowly but surely, you just, you know, your resistance is going and you're beginning to come into church tonight with your head down. Oh, I just hope nobody knows what I did today. That voice is talking to you about something you actually did. But it's telling you something about you that's not the truth. So he'll use truth, but he'll lie to you about what the truth means for you. So the fact that something's true, don't get me deceived by that. You need to know who's talking to you. John 10.10. 10. This is not really simple. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes, Satan, only. The word only means there's no other motive. There's no other goal. Only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So all you've got to do is discern, is this stealing, killing, or destroying? Because if it is, you know where it came from. I don't care what it's dressed up like. I don't care what it sounds like. So if that voice in your head makes you feel beaten down, discouraged, 
Oh, I can't ever pray. I can't if you pray today. If, oh, my God. That is not the voice of God. Now, God will correct you. Yes. And God will convict you. The Spirit of God will. But when He convicts you, it feels good. Because it hurts. <laughs> but when God speaks to you, He speaks to you as a loving Father. When He corrects you and said, You should not have done that. It's always with that heart that says, I know you can do better. The message is always to turn around and do it the right way. Whereas the voice of the devil is to get you to quit. That's what he's after. So we see this. The reason it's important to be walking in truth is our enemy doesn't walk in truth. So I don't want to be giving weapons to the enemy. I don't want to be using his weapons against me. I don't want to be living in his kingdom or operating in his kingdom. Now, that's nice and theological. Let's get down to where we live and how this has meaning to us. What do you mean, Pastor, by walking in truth? Well, there are two places where it's got to begin. The first, and you may not see this one right away, the first is to be honest with yourself. Because until you're walking in truth with yourself, about yourself, you can't even walk in truth with God. We saw, we didn't get into it, but over in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as they sinned, they went and what? They hid and they covered up. And when God shows on the scene, He's going to ask for an accounting of what happened. How many know He's coming back for an accounting? He's asked for an accounting of what happens and what does the man do? Because He didn't go to the woman to ask he went to the man to ask, Have you eaten of this fruit of the tree I told you not to eat of? Now, you know this about God. He doesn't ask questions to get information. It wasn't that God didn't know what they'd done. But he asked the question so that out of the mouth of the man would either come truth or a cover-up. And the first man, I'm sorry to say, Set the precedent. Because he basically said, God, I don't know whose fault it is. I just know it's not mine. He basically says, there are only three of us here. There's you, my wife, and me. I just know it's not me. Because what he said was, it's the woman you gave me. So it's either her or it's your fault for giving her to me, I just know it's not mine. (laughs) And this first man made a choice. Remember, he's in a spiritual warfare because Satan has come to steal, kill and destroy what God had given to them. And I am convinced that 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 man had stood up and been a man, and told the truth that God could have handled that very differently. Here's the issue with truth. The issue is if I'm going to walk in truth, that I'm going to take either what I've done or what's going on here and put it into God's hands and trust God to lead me through this. 
or I'm going to take it into my own hands and I'm going to handle this myself. And basically when we don't deal in truth, we're trying to do just what Adam did. We're trying to protect ourselves. And listen to me because this is armor now. When I choose to not walk in truth, it's because I'm trying to protect myself. If I'm protecting myself, listen carefully, I'm using my armor. I can't be wearing my armor and God's armor. So for me to, to, to try to handle a situation by not dealing in truth with myself, and then the next step is truth with God, then what happens is I have put off the armor of God and I put on my own armor to handle weapons coming from an enemy I can't see. Let's look in James because we'll see an example of this. James chapter 3. Starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now he's going to deal now with attitudes of the heart. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. In other words, if there's things off in your heart, don't lie against the truth and try to protect yourself. Because the moment you try to protect yourself, you put aside God's armor and you put on your own armor. And if we are really honest with ourselves, we'll find that the armor that we've been wearing is filled with holes. Because the enemy, your armor to the enemy is like tissue paper. Because remember, we're fighting against the deceits of the evil one. And when we don't choose to be honest with ourselves about where we are and what we're doing, we've chosen to deceive ourselves. It's what it says earlier in James. It says, if you're hearers of the word and not doers of the word, you deceive yourself. Now remember, what's the enemy's weapon? Deceit. So now the enemy doesn't have to fight me because I'm picking up his weapons and using them against myself. Thinking I'm protecting myself. Because remember, what he's after isn't what it appears he's after. Hebrews chapter 4. Here's the other reason it doesn't work. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrows. Literally in the Greek, 
that says piercing through the joints and the marrows. In other words, the Word of God pierces through anything. Have you ever felt the Word of God pierce your heart? The question is then, what do you do with what He exposed? Do you make excuses? That's what Adam did. Do you blame someone else? That's what Adam did. So many people are struggling. God is trying to help us to grow and to be strong and protect us. And He can't because we're blaming other people for where we are. We live in a society. It's an epidemic. It's a pandemic. Excuses are a pandemic. I was talking with Link before the service, and we're talking about some of these syndromes and conditions that people have when they come out of war. I'm not saying that they don't have difficult times, but they didn't have those in World War II. They didn't have those in the Korean War. I'm not saying people didn't struggle, but when we call things, sometimes we, we, what we, it's okay to identify what's behind something, but then that almost becomes an excuse for not getting over it. Well, you understand how my parents raised me. I was raised in a very difficult home. I don't want to go into the details. I've shared some of it with you before. And for years, I felt sorry for myself. I used it as an excuse for not growing. Well, you know, it's kind of, you know, oh, I had a hard upbringing. I had a tough childhood. Until I heard a story about a young girl in Vietnam. And then I heard, told the story, knows us, because he knows the girl. And when she was about 10 years old, the communists, the Viet Cong, came into her village, lined her entire family up, and machine-gunned them, including her. Somehow the bullets only grazed her. And then they left her alone in this village with her dead father, mother, brothers and sisters, and nothing else. Whatever I've been through doesn't begin to compare with that. Yet she chose not to use that as an excuse. She came to this country. She got adopted by this family. She grew up. She had to wrestle, obviously, with some things, but she overcame them, ended up going to college, to medical school, became a very successful doctor, and a very healthy and well-balanced person. She chose to do that. She chose to do that. She chose to do that. There are people that, without arms and legs that can paint. Steve was telling me about a situation where a guy can put gas in his car without hands. Is that what it is? Yeah, with his feet. They could either use those as excuses or they could face the reality, I don't have any arms anymore. Or they face the reality, yes, my family was machine gun. It's a horrible thing to go through. It's not to minimize it, but life goes on and I've got to choose what I'm going to do with that. Many of us are hiding from the truth behind excuses. Well, if my wife were just this, or my husband was just this, if I had a better job, or if I had a job, if I did this. Some of you are waiting for jobs. This is by the Spirit, I believe. You just need to do something. Well, it doesn't pay. Just do something, whether it pays or not. Do something. Do something. Do something. See, it's easier for God to direct something that's moving 
then they get someone moving. Do something. Volunteer. We can use all kinds of help. Do something for God. But it's easy in that mentality to use excuses. And excuses are the beginning of deceit. We're talking about the armor of God that He's provided. I'm understanding people go through difficult things. But it's what do you do with it? What's God able to do? What's God able to do? What God was able to do with this young Vietnamese girl, because she was saved, she got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. God's no respecter of persons. God's gotten people through situations you and I haven't begun to dream of. Gotten them out of them, gotten them through them, and made them whole. But He can't do it if we're... Li- See, you either, have an, you either have to choose the excuse or the deliverance. You can't have both. You can't have sympathy and be delivered. Because sympathy is a, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a counterfeit, and it feels good to our flesh. Oh, because that way I, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to face difficult times. I don't have to face growing up. Growing up's not easy because you've got to face your own weaknesses. Come face to face with them before you and before God. But that's the beginning of God able to work in our lives. And what we need to see tonight is the armor of God starts with truth. And here we see that the Word of God is sharp enough to pierce through. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Look at verse 13. For there's no creature, that includes you and me, no creature that's hidden from His sights, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So if I can't hide it from God, (laughs) why am I trying to hide it? Because I'm hiding it from the only one who can help me. I'm hiding it from the only one who can bring change into my life. I'm hiding it from the only one who can protect me. So it begins with being honest with yourself. Especially about the heart things. Oh, I think I'll meddle a little deeper. Because I'm talking to myself tonight as much as I'm talking to you. Ed Cole, some of you know who he is, was and some of you don't. Ed Cole was a, had a men's ministry, a very powerful men's ministry. And one of the things, most powerful statement, he had lots of nuggets, but one of them was, we judge other people by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. when in reality we ought to do it the other way around. Well, God looks on the heart. Yeah, but you need to go back and look at that scripture in Samuel and see the context of what God's talking about. He's not talking about looking at your good intentions as an excuse for what you're doing. Now, I'm not talking about trying hard. I'm not talking about that. But when we say, well, I'm trying, you know, my intentions, I meant well. I know I didn't do what I was supposed to do, but I, but I, I meant well. If you look through the first four, three books of Revelation, Jesus comes back and gives a report card to the churches, and I don't remember anywhere in there where he talks about their intentions. 
Well, you had good intentions. He said, you did this and you didn't do this. You dealt with this and you didn't dealt with this. Now, I'm not talking about being saved by works. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about when, when we, we use our intentions as an excuse for not facing sometimes just sin. We use our intentions sometimes for an excuse. Well, I meant well. Find a place in the Bible where that counts. Because meaning well is an excuse for not correcting something. We all fail. We all make mistakes. I'm not talking about that. But when you do, don't justify it by, well, I meant well. I blew it. I sinned or I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Face that. See, the only method that God has of freeing you in the Bible from your sin and your mistake is to confess it. Not explain it. Not justify it. But to confess it. The word confess, one of the meanings of the word confess literally means to accept ownership of. I threw the rock through the window. I didn't do what I should have done. No why, no I tried hard, I just didn't do it. No excuses, I just, that's truth. When we walk in truth and acknowledge the truth, 1 John 1, 9 says, then God's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nowhere do I know in the Bible it says if we explain why we did it. God doesn't care why we did it. He wants to free you of it. The only method the Bible prescribed for being freed of it is to bring it to the cross. At the cross, I confess I did it or I didn't do it and I bring it to you for forgiveness. Then He's promised to forgive us and cleanse us from all. We're talking about armor for spiritual warfare. Oh, it's nice to get up there and yell shundai and, you know, quote the word and do all this stuff. And you, but that's not what the Bible says to do. It starts our warfare with the openness of our heart to truth. I'll give you a couple more scriptures because it's late. I don't want to go on here. 1 Samuel 15 is a story of King Saul. And God through Samuel said, your assignment is to wipe out the Amalekites because they did not treat Israel correctly when they came into the promised land. Utterly destroy them from the king on down. So what Saul does is they destroy all the Amalekites, but they leave the king and leave the best of the sheep. He sinned. He violated what God said to do. Samuel shows up and says, did you do what God said to do? Did you utterly destroy the Amalekites? He said, yeah, that's exactly what God said to do. Now what Saul didn't realize is God had already told Samuel before he got there what Saul had done. So Saul, Samuel says, the prophet, what's that bleeding I hear? Bah, bah. Oh! Now he's going to cover up. See, once you start covering up, it gets more difficult because you've got to cover up the cover up. 
So Saul, Samuel says, or Saul says to Samuel, oh, 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 oh. Here, here's what happened. The people decided that they would keep the best of the sheep so that they could perform a sacrifice to God. So they disobeyed God because they thought that they were going to do something better for God than simply obey Him. That's how Eve got in trouble. But we know that's not the truth. And the story, of course, is Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. He doesn't mean they're the sacrifice of disobedience. He means doing something you think God's good for God instead of what God tells you to do. It gets worse because now that Saul, Samuel corrects him and basically says, God's taken the kingdom away from you, he says, well, please don't correct me in front of my soldiers because I still want to look good in front of them. He's trying to protect himself and cover up. Acts chapter 5. That's Old Testament, Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Ooh, now we're New Testament stuff. Oh, we want the presence of God to fall. Well, you need to understand what it's like when the presence of God's here in His fullness. Things get right. And the people were coming in and voluntarily selling their houses and, and bringing the offerings in and putting them before God and giving them to God. And Ananias and Sapphira sold their house. They didn't have to. It was fully voluntary. But they came and lied and said they brought all of their proceeds in when they held something back. And so when Ananias did that, he wasn't walking in truth. And he was standing in the presence of truth himself. He died on the spot. And they hauled his body out, and a few hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. And Peter says to her, did you sell the house for such and such an amount? Oh yeah, that's what we sold it for. He says, well, you know who your husband is? The, foot, the, the, footprints, the, the footsteps of the men that just buried him, they're coming back because they're going to bury you too. And she goes dead. See, God is truth. And they tried to cover up instead of being honest and walking in truth. And I'll end with this. And we may cover a little more. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, In these latter days, many, many are going to be deceived talking about the elect, talking about children of God. And I'll close with this verse. And then we may just touch on this the next time. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll close with this. Talks about the coming of the lawless one. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom God will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. Talking about the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is in accordance with the working of Satan with all his power, signs, and lying wonders. That's a subject for another discussion. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That doesn't just mean go to heaven. That they may be spared. The armor of God is God's protection for you against the onslaught of the enemy against you. It's God's weapons 
armor, it's tested, it's tried, and it's designed to fit you. And the foundational piece is to make sure that you're walking in truth. First of all, with yourself. And secondly, with God. Because if you choose to cover up, if you choose to protect yourself, if you choose to do anything else and then be open and exposed, doesn't mean you go on some witch hunt. You know in your heart what the truth is. The danger is if you stop facing the truth in yourself, you'll come to the place where you can no longer recognize truth in your heart. That's where people get deceived and have no intention of being deceived. I'm telling you what keeps coming back to me is these scriptures about in the latter days, many will be deceived. And I believe I have a responsibility before God to make sure that you're not deceived. I can't speak for other people, but for this church, I have a responsibility for myself as well as for you to make sure that we're a people that will not be deceived. But the beginning of that is we have to be honest with ourselves, stop making excuses, stop blaming other people, and just be honest before God and before ourselves. And then God can begin. Then God can protect you. I'll, I'll close. Well, I've had several instances where I made a mistake. One, I blew a deadline as a lawyer. I missed it. It was going to cost our client $100,000. I, I remember still the day I found it. I might, it just, my heart started pounding. I'd only been on the job a couple of years. And I, what do I do? So I went into the senior partner I work with, and I just was honest with him. He said, well, it'll be all right. Don't worry about it. The next thing I did is I went out and prayed. I said, God, what do I do? I mean, it's, there's, I know the law. There was no, once you blow this deadline, it's over with. The asset we had to sell literally disappeared legally. We had nothing to sell. And the Lord gave me just this inkling. Go prepare a motion to ask the judge to reconsider his decision. So I acted on that. I began to work on it. I talked with one of the, the clerk, guy that worked under me who had been this judge's clerk. And to make a long story short, I, I did all the research. I prepared the thing. I filed the motion. The guy that's my associate working under me said, I, work, I was this judge's clerk. He's never a- allowed one of these motions ever. I said, that's all I can do. I really felt this is what God showed me to do. Filed the motion on a Friday at noontime. Four o'clock Friday afternoon, I get a call from the judge's clerk saying, he wants to talk on the phone on Monday with the other lawyer and with me. Now, that's an encouraging sign. Monday, we get on the phone, and the judge is holding a hearing to, to reconsider his decision. Because I asked him to, to reinstate this thing was, that was lost. And he said, no, I can't. Then I asked him to reconsider it as if he'd made a mistake. He gets on the phone, and I've got a, all kinds of people on this phone conference with me. And the judge asked me this question. He said, Mr. Pfeffer, did you make a mistake? Now, lawyers don't like to admit they made a mistake because you can be liable, just like we don't like to admit a mistake. I had a split-second decision to explain some justification or just say yes. Thank the Lord I said yes. Because it's either this, in that moment's time, I was either going to protect myself 
or I was going to stand naked legally in front of this judge and say, have mercy on me. And that's what I chose to do. But see, when I did that, God took over. Because the other lawyer starts yelling and screaming from the other side, well, you can't, you know, you can't change your mind. And the judge starts arguing my case for me. He ended up reversing his decision, reinstating the thing that was sold. They got sold for $100,000, and the judge wrote an opinion based on what he'd done. He found grounds for me to reverse his decision. I know it was the protection of God, but it was only because I was honest and open before this judge and before my God and therefore I relied on God to protect me and not my own thinking and devices to protect myself. Put on the belt of truth. Everything else this armor is hinges on walking in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word because your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce into our hearts. And Lord, our hearts may have been pierced tonight, but it's because you want to set us free and you want to deliver us. And so we thank you tonight, Father, for loving us that much, that you provide your protection, that we will not only come through this battle, but we will succeed and we will prosper. Father, I pray for every one of us tonight, especially for me that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see truth in our lives. We would see those areas where we've been protecting ourselves and covering up, trying to handle these things ourselves instead of just being honest with you and with ourselves, and maybe we need to be honest with some others. Wherever those areas are in our life right now, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit of truth to shine his light on those areas, that we may be set free, And we may put those areas into your hands to protect us and to provide for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.